morning we are back again uh, on Epiphany Sunday. This is what this day is in the Christian calendar. It's the day we remember how the wise men came to the place where the Christ child was and had an epiphany, had an awakening, became fully conscious of the glory that was present in the Christ child. And so this morning, we're going to look together at that story. We find it in Matthew chapter 2. I want to welcome you to turn in your pew Bibles or in your own copy of the Scriptures to that part of the Gospel message. And we're going to be reading the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. As you know, those of you who've been along for the ride these past weeks, during the Christmas season, we've been looking at how the original uh, figures in the Christmas story handled the events of Christmas, right? My premise has been this, that in the story of Christmas, we meet that array of choices and challenges that still define life for many of us today. And that if we can study how the original characters of Christmas handled these things, how God enabled them to handle these things, we're going to get cues and clues to how to more effectively handle these same choices and challenges that we face in the year ahead. And no place, I think, is that clearer than in the story we're going to look at this morning. Very helpful, practical insight out of this story this morning. Uh, We're going to read responsively the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. And uh, let's just proclaim together then, uh, through the gospel message, the word of the Lord. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, He asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet Micah has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly. And he found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Well, the question that I want to pose this morning is, what can we learn from the wise men about how to handle the circumstances of life that can make a difference for us in this year to come? How, in their handling of Christmas, do they better equip us, if we pay attention to the lessons from their life, to handle our lives in the days ahead? It has to be said at the start that there's a great deal about the Magi that remains a mystery. There's a great deal about these figures we meet in Matthew's Gospel that we do not know or understand fully. For example, we don't know precisely where these people came from. All the Bible tells us is that they came from east, east of Jerusalem, a very large uh, territory of the world, I might add. Some have speculated that these individuals hailed from Persia, uh, modern-day Iran, uh, because that is the place where ancient Zoroastrian religion still held sway. Zoroastrianism is one of the oldest of the world's religions. The Zoroastrians believe in one great creator God who seeks to overcome evil with good. The Zoroastrians believe that God speaks through the wisdom of a variety of different religious traditions. And so the Zoroastrians studied the literature of many religions. They believed that God's purposes could also be discerned by studying the stars. You can see then how the account in Matthew chapter 2 might lead some to believe that these individuals were Zoroastrians because what is described here is individuals very familiar with what the Jewish scriptures had taught about the coming of a prophesied Messiah and also how they took their cues from the pattern of the stars. So did they come from Persia, perhaps? We have to wonder. Or perhaps from Ethiopia or from China, as some others have suggested. The answer is we can't say for sure. We also don't know who the wise men were specifically. Though if you've heard the Christmas carol, you might have grown up believing that they were oriental kings. Have you heard that? We three kings of Orient are smoking on a rubber cigar. That's what I learned (laughs) as a little boy. Well, the first part of that, not the cigar part, the first part, the oriental king part, is drawn from a prophecy from Isaiah in which we read, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Well, maybe these wise men were kings. If so, uh, Matthew somehow missed that, including that fact in his telling us of the story. He simply tells us that they were magi. Magi, M-A-G-I, a word which comes uh, from ancient literature, uh, a term that was used to describe a certain class of academic scholars people who studied history and science, astrology and magic. In fact, our word magic comes from the root word magi. These were people who sought knowledge and truth. And it is possible, I suppose, that that these people were Zoroastrian scholars, uh, truth seekers. We We don't know for certain. We also don't know how many of them there were. Uh, Christmas carols and cards aside, uh, we don't know the specific number of the wise men. How many are typically pictured? Three. And the reason is because they brought three gifts, and we conclude there must have been just three of them. A tradition dating back to the 8th century 
even gives the gift givers specific names. Calls them Casper or Gasper. Uh, Melchior and, and Balthazar are some of the names attributed to them. Older traditions than the 8th century uh, actually have pegged their number at more like 12 wise men. And we know that there was certainly a tremendous stir created by the arriving of, arrival of the caravan of wise men in Jerusalem at, at, the, uh, at the time of Jesus' birth. We know that. Uh, Jerusalem was the crossroads of the ancient world. There were lots of parties that came and went there. So that it had to have been a big enough number that it would create a stir uh, that was different than the normal flow of traffic there. So does that mean there were three with a big caravan of supporters? There were five? There were a dozen or more? Only God knows. Only God knows for sure. There's a lot about the Magi that is a mystery. But what we do not know pales in significance to what we definitely do know about them. And as I studied the scriptures for myself afresh this past week, it struck me that there were at least four particular attributes of these persons worth learning from. Four attributes, manners of the Magi, I'll call them, that seemed luminous to me. And I would like to unpack each of these, if you'd permit permit me, uh, to try and describe each of these four characteristics. And then reflect at the close on the implications their example has for you and for me. Is that a, a covenant? Can we do that together this morning? First of all, we can say with absolute certainty that the Magi were actively searching for the truth. These were active truth seekers. Now, if you think about it, most of us discover the truth in one of two ways. Check this against your own experience. Uh, sometimes truth finds us right there's an aha truth finds us i'll give you an example i was at soldier field last monday night with my family i was one of the frozen chosen when all of a sudden truth found us the chicago bears can play football (laughs) they can play offense they can play defense they can perform in the clutch i had arrived at that stadium not knowing that truth based on the past season, when it suddenly found me. They can play football. Sometimes truth finds us, right? In fact, if you look at the Christmas story, that is the way truth happens for most of the people in the story. To Mary, to Joseph, to the shepherds, to, uh, to even to Herod, truth suddenly dawned upon them, right? The message came upon them. There was an aha, truth found them. Just dropped onto them when they were otherwise occupied. That's not the way it is with the Magi. These people discovered truth because they were actively seeking it. They were purposely going after it. They had been scouring the scriptures, the text makes clear. They had left uh, other pursuits behind to go off on a very expensive and exhausting journey to get closer to that truth. They had studied the stars to try and find patterns that might lead them to that truth. They might have held some crazy beliefs along the way. They might have practiced spirituality in a manner that isn't worthy of our imitation. But you have to admire the commitment that these people showed to discovering more of God than they already had. And I think there's a profound irony in this particular part of the story. It would have It should be shocking to us if we really get close to it. You see, the Jewish people 
they had the truth in their hands. Of all people, the Jewish people had the truth in their hands. They had the most reliable scriptures and prophecies. I mean, there, was, there is no religious book at this point in history that has the kind of consistent reliability in terms of predicting the path of the future, like the scriptures of the Old Testament that the Jews held in their hands. They had the most decisive revelation of God and the most dramatic experience of God of any people on earth thus far, uh, according to studying the, the ancient traditions. But when the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, the scriptures say, when they received the news that the ultimate king of the Jews had been born in Bethlehem, had actually, it had happened, he's here, the baby's been born in Bethlehem of Judea, just as the book had predicted. Not five miles away, from the place where they're getting the news. This thing has happened over in, in Bethlehem and they're sitting here in Jerusalem just five miles away. What do they do? What do the chief priests and teachers of the law do? They sit there. They sit right where they are. Why? Because they thought they had enough of the truth. They felt they had enough of it. Or they were skeptical that there could really be much more than they already knew. Only the pagan magi possessed the passionate zeal for truth to go and make a careful search for the child. Sometimes truth finds you right where you're sitting. It's wonderful when that happens. Sometimes, however, you have to get up and go out in search of it. Or you miss out on the more that God wants to show you of himself. The more that God wants to help you discover in your marriage, in your parenting, in your spiritual life. Sometimes you have to go out and search of greater truth. How ironic is it that it was the pagans and not the pious people who got this? But there's a second characteristic of the Magi also worth noting, I think. First, they are active seekers after the truth. And then secondly, we get this other insight right at the point where the wise men get to Bethlehem. The Bible says, and I quote, that on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Now, as I said earlier, there's no evidence specifically that these men were actual kings. But their response here reminds me of what the wisest royals have always kept very clear in their mind. I love this story that comes out of British history. Dean Frederick Farrar was a personal friend of Queen Victoria, the greatest regent on the planet Earth at this particular time in history, Queen Victoria of England. And on one occasion, he tells of a conversation he has with Her Majesty just after she'd heard one of her chaplains preach a message about the second coming of Jesus. Victoria said, Oh, Dean Farrar, how I wish that the Lord would come during my lifetime. 
And the dean went on to ask her why she felt that way. And when he asked why, the queen's face brightened up noticeably and with profound emotion she answered, because I would just love to take off my crown and lay it at his blessed feet in reverent adoration. I would like nothing more than to be able to do that. Do you know how to spot true greatness in a person? Do you know how to spot true greatness in a person? What you notice about them is that they consider it pure joy to encounter someone greater than themselves. They are not intimidated. They are not uh, blasé about it. They consider it joy to, to meet the presence of true greatness. They are energized and enthralled by it. They consider it joy to behold the one who is greater than them and to, to present themselves at the disposal of that, of that greater one. And so at the absolute height of his power and fame, for example, John the Baptist, who was a rock star in his day, was a major actor and figure, probably the largest, most luminous character since Elijah or King David himself, at the height of his fame and influence, as his fans are are gathering around him, he catches a sight of Jesus going by and he tells everybody watching him, don't follow me any longer, follow him. He must become greater and I must become less. He considers it joy to be in the presence of someone greater and he lays down his crown before him. And so when these brilliant scholars arrive at the house, they see the child, what's their response? What's their response? They lay down whatever earthly credentials they had and with absolute joy, they bow down and worship him In other words, they lay their crowns at his blessed feet in reverent adoration. Right? That's what they do. And then they do a third thing worth noting. The Bible says they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold and of incense, frankincense, and of myrrh. Now, much has been made of those three gifts over the years. In fact, some have suggested these three gifts have what we call prophetic significance. That is, they, they point to something. They, they, are, they are brilliant gifts in that they are signposts to some larger reality than the gifts themselves. For example, gold is the royal substance. And so some believe that this was given because the Magi understood that they were greeting the king above all kings. And frankincense was the priestly substance. It was an incense that was burned in temples all around the planet to honor God. And so some have suggested that frankincense was given because the Magi understood that this was the great high priest of humanity they were encountering. The one who would stand between humanity and God and, and, and close the distance. And so they gave him frankincense as a sign of that. The third gift was myrrh, which was the burial substance. 
The one, the substance that was used, the spice that was used in, in preparing the bodies of the dead, in preserving the bodies of the dead. And some have suggested that they gave that particular gift because they understood that this king and priest they were meeting was going to make the ultimate sacrifice, would, would actually accomplish his purposes by dying. And that in that supreme sacrifice, humanity would be preserved from the dead. Could the wise men have been that wise? That they gave gifts like this to point to that larger reality? Because certainly Jesus was all these things. He was the king of kings. He turned out to be the great high priest. He was the supreme sacrifice. Did they understand that then? Well, one thing we do know for sure. Those three gifts were costly ones. They were precious items that no one in that time ever gave up easily. They would have been difficult to transport that great distance to Jesus. And yet they did, those wise men. And they gave these things to him. They gave him gifts worthy of who Jesus was. Time is getting short, so I want to summarize what we've learned thus far and move us toward a close today. There are four attributes, four manners of the Magi that I think are worth our attention. First, they went on an active search for the truth. Secondly, they joyfully bowed their lives before the greatest one. Thirdly, they gave Jesus gifts that were worthy of who he was. And finally, they let their journey be redirected by their encounter with Christ. And let me just focus in on that last one for a moment. They let their journey be redirected by their encounter with Christ. You've got to remember that these magi had spent most of their time in the courts of kings. That's what it meant to be a magi. It meant that you were not just a common, educated person. It means you were one of the great intellectuals of your time. You were the people that kings brought into their courts, that they brought into their cabinet. You were an advisor to royalty. The Magi understood the ways of kings. They knew about royal protocols. They knew that that the orders and instructions of kings were to be respected. And they had very strict orders from the king of Judea, Herod, to report back to him right away as soon as they found the child. But when you meet the king of kings, when you meet the Lord of lords, you become an ambassador of a higher kingdom than the one from which you may have previously taken your instructions. And so the magi here do something very interesting. Though they know Herod's orders clearly, they exercise diplomatic privileges. Right? They ignore the law of this land and they obey a higher law, the law of the highest kingdom of all. The scriptures say that having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their country by another route. In other words, they choose to ignore Herod and they travel by the way of God instead. That's the fourth thing we notice about them. They allow their way to be redirected by God's instructions, by an encounter with Christ. So, as I said earlier, 
There's a lot of mystery about these magi. Right? We don't know where they came from. We don't know who they were. We don't know how many of them there were. We don't know their names. We don't even know where they went. What became of them after this particular story? Or maybe we do. Maybe we do. Maybe they became us. Or better yet, perhaps we have the opportunity to become them, the wise in our time. You see, if you've been to Bethlehem, if you've truly been to Bethlehem with me this past Christmas season, if you've encountered this child, it is going to change you. You are not going to leave the same way you came. You are going to begin to take on to yourself and into yourself more of the way of the Magi in these years or days to come. The manner of their living will be your manner. And I want to ask you to think about with me for just a moment, what would that actually look like in practice? To be like them. To handle Christmas and life their way. First of all, I want to suggest to you that it means that we will resolve to actively search for the truth in this year ahead. More actively search for that truth. Don't be content with what you already know. (laughs) That is one of the greatest traps of life is that you stop learning, that you get settled into these mental models and these contained understandings of reality, life, yourself, people, God. Don't, don't get stuck there. Get up out of your seat (laughs) and go off on a journey in this year to come and determine to find more of God more of the truth. Don't sit in Jerusalem or your armchair and just wait for the truth to find you. Maybe that means for you going out and reading your Bible more regularly. You know, get a, a, a daily biblical devotional and study that uh, on a regular basis. Or set aside more time to pray. Or attend a church weekly. Average American, if they get to church, it's once a month. Maybe twice a month. Make a more regular practice of that in your life. Go to the Start Here class that we're going to be offering just next week. Or come back for Greg Ogden's wonderful series later this month on growing intentionally in Christ's likeness. Or attend an equipping center course. In other words, just get up and go out on the journey of active discipleship and you will be blessed by the more of God that he helps you to discover. I know you will if you go on that journey of seeking. Secondly, resolve that this will be the year in which you bow more of your life in reverent devotion before the king. This is going to be a year in which I bow more fully. Stop behaving, if you have been, as if life is about God arranging things for your pleasure. And start arranging more of your life for his pleasure. We live in one of the most selfish, self-aggrandizing periods in human history. We believe that so much of life is meant to be about fulfilling us. What if life is actually about fulfilling our purposes in a larger reality, in a larger scheme? Lay down the crown of pride or of entitlement that so afflicts our culture. Let's just lay it down 
in our workplace, in our homes, in our civic affairs. Let's stop trying to be high and mighty. If God himself could lay aside the crown of glory and humble himself and take the form of a servant and live in a dung-filled manger, if, if he could come to a stable like that, can't we do something to bow ourselves before the one who is truly great? Maybe it means giving glory and praise to God, not for what's missing, but for what he's already given. Maybe it means really worshiping when you come to this place, not just mouthing the words. Thirdly, resolve to give God in this year ahead gifts that are truly worthy of him. You know, I find in my own life, it's it's so tempting to settle into what I would call a leftover mentality when it comes to giving my gifts to God. He'll get my leftover time, my leftover energy, my leftover money. He gets my leftovers. And I pat myself on the back. At least I'm giving him something. That's not the way of the wise. If he is truly God, and he is, then he deserves our best gifts. Giving him my best, giving him my first fruits isn't charity. It's rationality, right? It's fitting. It's appropriate. He deserves the very best. It's the wise and good way to be living. Finally, resolve to redirect your journey by God's orders and not by lesser authorities in this year ahead. Herod is going, you can count on this, Herod is going to speak as loudly and consistently to you in 2010 as he did last year. He is going to give you all kinds of instructions, right? He's going to say, look out for number one. He's going to tell you, get even for that, with that person that did you wrong. Climb over other people. Go faster and faster. Spend more. Become like those people over there. Follow that set of priorities. Herod is going to issue instructions from many places all year long. But God is also going to be giving you instructions. And those instructions come from a very different kind of kingdom than Herod's. He is going to say things like, look after the weak. Find the person who's the stranger and bring them in. Forgive people. Pray more. Slow down. Rest trust, encourage other people, spend wisely, become more like Jesus. It will sometimes seem very difficult to follow that way than the way of Herod. The way of Herod only takes us five miles back to Jerusalem. God calls us on a longer, tougher journey. But friends, it is by following the instructions of that higher kingdom that we find our way home to the only life that is truly worth living. Let me say in closing that there is just a single word that describes this way we've been talking about. There's one word that describes the lifestyle of seeking truth, of bowing before God, of giving our best, of following God's directions, and that word begins with a double, and it's not the word wisdom, though this is all wisdom, The word is worship. That's what worship is. Worship is not planting our seats in a pew. Worship is seeking actively the truth of God. 
Worship is bowing the whole of ourselves before His glory and greatness. Right? Worship is bringing Him the very best gifts we can possibly give, the ones that are worthy of who He is. Worship is allowing our lives to be redirected, our journeys to be redirected by our encounter with Christ. Worship is what we've been practicing, I hope, today. And worship is the great game. It's the divine journey that we get to go on together in this year ahead. And let me just say, fellow Magi, what a privilege it remains to follow that way with you.